Hi, we are Caroline and Levi Holt, and we're part of the family here at Holt Farms. When I think of the people that I know that I watched wear Liberty overalls growing up, hard work, determination, perseverance, just a real appreciation for their craft and what they did and, and for things that, that lasted and for things that, that meant something to them. That's what I saw walking around in Liberty overalls. Shop LibertyBibs.com for your pair today. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today we are wrapping up our Positively Farming Media Network member series with the Diversity Imperative Podcast, hosted by Erin Gowerlock and Hannah Conshu. You may remember Hannah from episode 146 of the Rural Woman Podcast, where we chatted all about women in leadership and gender diversity in agriculture. In this episode of the Diversity Imperative Podcast, Aaron and Hannah had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Melissa Arcand, who is an assistant professor and a soil biochemist at the University of Saskatchewan. They discuss how Melissa's work as a natural scientist intersects with that of Indigenous knowledge systems. I also want to take a minute to highlight another great episode of the Diversity Imperative podcast that Dr. Melissa Arcand was featured on. She was a guest host for the episode titled Lost Harvest with Dr. Sarah Carter. In this episode, they discuss Dr. Sarah Carter's book, Lost Harvests, Prairie Indian Reserve Farmers and Government Policy. It is a very powerful episode to listen to, and I hope you tune in wherever you listen to podcasts. I have left the link to that episode in the show notes today for you. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's Positively Farming Media Network member interview with the Diversity Imperative podcast. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Diversity Imperative, a podcast dedicated to unearthing the agriculture sector's potential. We'll talk with diverse voices and industry leaders to motivate listeners to take their organizations, whether it's the family farm or a life science company, to the next level when it comes to stewarding their most important resource, people. My name is Hannah Conchu, and I'm a grain farmer from Clooney, Alberta. 
And I'm Erin Gowerluck, and I lead a national grower association in the nation's capital. Our goal each episode will be to dig into some great conversations that go beyond 280 characters and that seek to inspire a broader dialogue engaging all people in our sector, regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or ability. Through rich and candid conversations, which consider a variety of perspectives, we look forward to exploring ways to overcome barriers and make diversity and inclusion a topic that everyone is comfortable talking about. Today, we're joined by Dr. Melissa Arkand, Assistant Professor and Soil Biogeochemist from the University of Saskatchewan. Melissa's research interests focus on optimizing plant-soil synergies for the design of nutrient and energy-efficient cropping systems. She received her PhD in soil science from the University of Saskatchewan and conducted her postdoctoral research with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Melissa also grew up on a farm on the Muskeg Lake Cree Nation in central Saskatchewan. She teaches and is the academic advisor for students in the Ganawe Teitan ASCII program designed to train students to work in resource management and land governance in Indigenous communities across Canada. Her emerging work uses biophysical tools to examine the effects of agriculture and land tenure arrangements on ecosystem health on First Nations land. Thanks so much for joining us tonight, Melissa. Thanks, Hannah and Erin. It's really exciting to be here with you too. So I think um, our, our listeners are going to see a pattern when I say that I'm super excited to talk to you, but I'm personally just super jazzed that you're joining us tonight because you and I are, we're old soil science colleagues. That's right. Yeah, we spent um, many hours shoulder to shoulder um, <laughs> working on doing soil analyses. So that was, yeah, that was a really fun time. Yeah, for sure. And I actually, I was thinking back and I think that I started listening to podcasts because of you. I remember we were doing uh, an analysis one day and you said, let's turn on a podcast. And I think that's actually how it all started for me. So yeah, I'm definitely a podcast addict. Yeah. Sure. It, gets, it gets you through the long hours of whatever tedious work you might be doing solitarily. So. Totally. And now, yeah. now that I find myself in equipment a lot, it's, it's what I need to keep my brain going. So, so, yeah. so glad to be able to, to do that. That's awesome. So I thought we could start with you sharing with us what it looks like for you to be a, a soil scientist and a professor in uh, a university setting, because I think that probably on the surface, most people understand that that, that looks like you're contributing um, work to a, a body of, you're contributing science to a body of work, but maybe not all the, the different components that go into that, like teaching and all those sorts of things. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, it's definitely a lot more diverse than I think most people um, in the general public might understand like the job of a professor to, to be. Um, yeah, you know, most people probably imagine us in front of a classroom and spending a lot of our time teaching undergrad students. Um, but there's, you know, it's really diverse and dynamic and probably oftentimes really busy. Um, but yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, my time is split between teaching undergrad courses, but then also mentoring graduate students. Like that's probably a big part of my time is, is involving mentoring grad students in conducting their own research, um, you know, that contributes to them writing their thesis and, uh, you know, eventually becoming experts in their own right. And, and then another part of, you know, our time is spent like chasing money 
and writing grants uh, that support our research and um, and actually that enable us to have the funds to actually hire graduate students that can then do the do the work because a lot of um, the lot of the hands-on research is actually done by grad students and research technicians and postdocs and undergrad students you know gone are the days where like I get to be in the lab um, you know on a day-to-day basis and it's kind of sad because I think we get into research because we love being in the field or we love being in the lab um, uh, but but often eventually that evolves to us supporting other people who get to do that work um, so yeah it's pretty diverse it's pretty dynamic every day is kind of different and now that we're in the pandemic COVID world and working from home it's a lot of a lot of meetings and um, you know we don't necessarily get to do a lot of you know a lot of the face-to-face learning that happens is 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 you know not really an option anymore so it's been an, a big adaptation oh i'm sure it has yeah and i was one of those grad students who was mentored by a, a soil scientist well actually two so um i'm yeah i'm just so appreciative of that work that you do to keep um mentoring you know future researchers that are going to go off and and do great things in the world so that's wonderful so thinking back to 2019, you were the invited scholar to the Waywini Indigenous Scholar Scholars Speaker Series at the University of Winnipeg. And you gave this amazing presentation called Understanding from the Land. And we've been calling it Melissa's TED Talk because we've watched it a few times and, and just appreciated everything that you, you shared um, during that talk so much. And it just really gave a, a fantastic history of Indigenous agriculture on the prairies and, and our prairie history, really. And so we're, we're probably going to reference it a bunch here tonight. So we'll make sure to link to that in our show notes. But you started off that talk by sort of connecting the work that you do as a, a natural scientist or a soil scientist practicing sort of Western science and how that sort of uh, intersects with or is informed by Indigenous knowledge systems. So I was hoping you could just make that connection for us again and how that might sort of inform the work that goes on to manage land um, on um, or managed by indigenous communities and land leaders there. So I was trained in the natural sciences and my whole academic background has been in in knowing how to do Western science. And, um, but but it does, certainly when it comes to studying the land and the way the environment works, the way ecosystems work, the way ecological relationships um, are understood also really strongly uh, connects with um, Indigenous ways of knowing and understanding what those, say, for example, um, processes might be ecological relationships. And for me, you know, that question about trying to connect Indigenous knowledge systems with Western science is an ongoing lifelong process. And I think for at least for me personally, because of my academic background um, and and in probably just the age that I, that I am, which like I'm still pretty young, I'm, you know, an elder millennial, let's say. Um, <laughs> Um, but even for even for me at, at my age uh, and growing up in the, in the 80s, uh, there was still a lot of like really clear um, 
impacts of of the residential school system and of the ways in which uh, Indigenous kids, when we were growing up, were were kind of assimilated into or being forced to assimilate into into Western culture. So. In, in spite of um, having the opportunity to grow up in my own community and, you know, be exposed to, to my language uh, growing up and to many cultural aspects and, and, and traditional practices, there is still a lot of, uh, when I went training in my undergrad and, and graduate school, you sort of in some ways had to set some of those things aside and didn't have to, but you sort of felt like you were being trained in one way. And what I'm really encouraged by now is that um, Indigenous uh, people who get into the STEM fields don't aren't doing that. Like the next generation of students are really um, revitalizing and reclaiming their cultural identity um, while also learning, you know, Western methods and, and, you know, Western scientific, um, um, you know, approaches to understanding the environment. So, so for me, I'm kind of trying to as well understand, um, understand those Indigenous knowledge systems and, and help myself like better enable the Western science that I have to, you know, hopefully provide you know, good change and good good um, land management decisions that can happen uh, within the context of indigenous land management. So it's 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 complicated because there's a history of um, of assimilation that has caused many of us to lose a lot of our our knowledge, a lot of our traditional knowledge and, and language. And so, uh, in terms of of connecting that again, my Western science background to indigenous knowledge systems, it's, it's, it's an ongoing process and it's kind of connecting back to community members, to elders, um, to knowledge keepers and trying to find the commonalities. And I think the best way that I've been able to experience it so far is actually being out on the land together. And, you know, if Hannah, like you're a soil scientist and you did you know, you did field work and what is what gets a soil scientist more excited than actually being out in the field and digging a hole and, you know, grabbing grabbing a chunk of soil in their hands and, you know, starting to sort of characterize it and look across the landscape and, and understand why, you know, that soil in that spot is the way it is because of all of these, you know, all of these factors. And so when you when you can start to just talk about the land and talk about the landscape and talk about the history, that engages everybody like that engages that engages the traditional knowledge about that land that engages like the oral history that tells us stories about that land. Um, and so it's it's sort of a, a common place where, you know, different understandings can 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 merge together. Um, and to be able to explain phenomena that we both observe, but in different ways. So, you know, that part, again, I think it's really complicated. I think there's probably um, scholars that have done a lot of work on this that are, you know, better, can better explain this than I can, because I still feel very much like a learner in this, in this realm. And it, it sort of seems like it's, it's like a lens that the work needs to be seen through because that disconnect happened. And then you're, you know, you sort of spoke to how the, the history of the land and sort of the, 
the practices that were done by Indigenous elders, um, those practices that were carried out, they're kind of lost some in some cases. So just being able to sort of bring that lens to the work that's going on seems pretty important. Yeah, and actually I can maybe give a couple of concrete examples about how um, the you know indigenous worldview and, and perspectives change the way that land management decisions might be made, like in a real practical um, sense. So, so for example, um, this past summer in my home community, there was uh, just sort of an abundance of black bears that were that I, I mean for whatever variety of reasons, the population of black bears was um, was really increasing on the in the community and there was concerns, you know, obviously about human bear (laughs) interactions, wanting to make sure people are safe and kids are safe. And the land management, um, the land manager was very concerned about listening to the elders in that, you know, he wasn't going to, um, you know, have the bear be killed. So, and that was because of um, the relationship that the elders had had said is really important between the community and the bear. The bear is like a brother and you don't just shoot your brother because, you know, he he happens to be um, living in the same space that you are. It's his territory just as much as it's yours. So it makes for more complicated, sometimes more complicated solutions to be found. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the end, um, you know, I, there was, there was, there had been no issues between, <laughs> between any bears and the community members and, and it seemed to be, end up being fine, but it was still like a conversation that was had, um, and one that, that, you know, they really, um, were considering and, and, and really kind of grappling with, okay, well, you can't, the solution can't just be that we kill this bear. And then another example that I can give is uh, working with, with somebody who uh, was, was in charge of, of managing some land that was going to be uh, restored um, so that bison could return to that piece of land. And that the history of that land was, um, it was grain cropped for many years and under, you know, conventional practices. And at some point their in time, um, you know, municipal uh, sewage sludge had been applied to the land. And, and so there was concerns uh, as well, even just about when, when restoring um, land that had been under, you know, conventional production to native grassland, weeds are uh, a concern. And so this land manager was really grappling with how to control for weeds because, you know, they didn't want to have to rely on herbicide use. Um, And so again, it's, it's one of these things where because of the cultural view of not wanting to, you know, kill uh, and use, use synthetic chemical to do that, you know, forces, um, forces harder solutions or more creative solutions to be to be found, and so um, you know these are like really practical contemporary land management decisions that communities are grappling with or individuals are grappling with, and they're grappling with it in part because of the cultural um, understandings of of our relationship to those other beings, you know, those other animate and inanimate you know, beings that are our relatives. Um, so it, it, yeah, it, it kind of, it creates an, another lens to look at some of these decisions. 
Um, and so, yeah, it, I mean, I guess it's kind of like points towards how some of these things aren't simple. A less widely held understanding of our prairie history is that First Nations people were practicing intentional land management and agriculture on the prairies prior to colonialization. What did this look like? You know, I think depending where you are, um, uh, here you're asking specifically about the prairies. So um, again, the example that I gave, or, you know, that I often give is, is that relationship between, you know, the bison, the grassland and fire. Um, so prescribed burning is, is something that's been practiced by Indigenous communities on the prairies and, and elsewhere too in, in, in forest management. Prescribed burning is really important to forest management. But on the prairies, fire is that critical disturbance along with grazing that rejuvenates the, the, the grasses and the grasslands. And so, um, so Indigenous people employed fire intentionally and because it would you know it would it would stimulate um growth of the grass again and that would then bring you know the bison would then be able to feed on that you know fresh that really nice green new grass so you know there's a way that again um it's more ecologically based but there's still like an intentionality in determining, well, where are you going to burn? That's a decision, right? You, it's not just a haphazard um, interaction with the landscape and the, you know, all of the components of the environment. It's it's an intentional. It's a decision that's made that's being made, and so that's management. You know, anytime that a, that a decision is being made that alters the landscape and the you know the organisms that are in that ecosystem, that's a management decision. At least that's how I, that's what I would consider to be a management decision. So even on the prairies, where maybe um, agriculture wasn't, uh, you know, sort of the cultivation of crops of specific, you know, crop species, and maybe there wasn't necessarily selection of of and breeding um, of cultivars, let's say, uh, there was still at least an interaction with the land that was intentional, that was sort of a management system, and. As well, you know, in, in North America and throughout the whole Americas, there's massive trade networks. So communities that may have not practiced agriculture in, in the way of, you know, thinking about growing corn, for example, were certainly aware of other communities elsewhere uh, on the continent that were because those things were passed along via trade. So, um, so there was at least an understanding, you know, that, that people were harvesting and growing, um, growing, you know, plants for cultivation. And certainly in, in, in our area and in, in, you know, Northern Saskatchewan and in Ontario in the Great Lakes region, wild rice was a staple crop. And so there's a whole tradition around, um, around harvesting and, and around the whole sort of ecology and management of those wild rice systems as well. So, um, so you know, there was, there was a lot of, you know, sort of quote unquote, well, I, I'm going to erase those quotes, agricultural management that was taking place um, prior to, you know, settlement of the prairies and, and European settlement and bringing about, you know, European um, practices in agriculture. Tis the season to shop rural. Meet this week's Trailblazer Co. 
Holiday Gift Guide Featured Business. Are you looking for beautiful, unique, and wholesome holiday gifts? Rudy Joe Mercantile has you covered. They carry a wide variety of brands that you are going to fall in love with. Rudy herself curates collections of products that bring joy to your home and heart, all with a touch of old-fashioned sunshine. Rudy Joe Mercantile is proud to be one of the few Canadian retailers of Antique Candle Co. They also recently became a stockist of Blondie Apparel, a 100% Canadian-made apparel line of stylish, elevated basics. Rudy has just released her holiday collection that is filled with an incredible variety of drinkware, stationery, candles, handmade decor, and clothing. Truly something for everyone on your shopping list. Head to the link in today's show notes or rudyjoe.com to sign up for her newsletter so you don't miss a Tuesday's new release. And while you're visiting Rudy Joe Mercantile online, you can enjoy 15% off your order by using code RURALWOMAN15 at checkout. So, I mean, I think maybe there was a, there's maybe an, an understanding held that the First Nations people were, they sort of wandered, they were just kind of doing stuff here and there, but really we're talking about intentional decisions, understanding what's going on in the landscape and, and using that to sustain themselves. So, so very much so intentional in what they were doing. Yeah, absolutely. So then to, to fast forward a bit, so European contact happens and the prairies start to be turned over into sort of more like traditional um, agriculture. So growing one crop, uh, turning the land and, um, First Nations farmers were also doing that as well, based on what was going on. Um, and um, when I think back to your talk, you gave uh, a really, you showed a really uh, cool picture of First Nations farmers using uh, modern equipment at that time. And I think you mentioned that they had been, you know, they were, you know, early adopters of using Massey Ferguson equipment. So that they were, and it turns out that they were very successful at what they were doing. And part of that success maybe came from carrying forward some of their traditional ways of being. So sharing knowledge, sharing work, sharing equipment. But then what happens is, and I, my timelines might not be quite on point here, but a number of policies sort of start to, to rear their, their ugly heads and sort of set back the success that First Nation farmers are having and really all First Nations people. And I know it's a, a lot to unpack in one conversation, but we were sort of hoping that we could touch on what some of those, what some of what some of those most detrimental things were that happened, and that that really started to um, affect First Nations farmers and the the agriculture they were practicing. Yeah, there were quite a number of of policies and actions that the government implemented, um, you know, in the late 1800s and at different times throughout the early 20th century as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, really, a lot of the examples were all about not only controlling movement of people, but also movement of produce and agricultural implements and um, basically control over the ability to engage in the agricultural economy. Yeah, so I, I would definitely uh, encourage people to go to some of the historical works that have been done by uh, historians and, and scholars who, who've done that, that really is historical 
um, dive deep. And so that would be Sarah Carter, um, who wrote Lost Harvest. That's probably the seminal work in that area. Um, and then we have James Daszak, who wrote Clearing of the Plains. Um, and that really kind of focused in on how disease and starvation were sort of instruments of, um, of colonization. And, and then there's also uh, another book that is really specific about some of these policies it's called From Wooden Plows to Welfare, and it's written by Helen Buckley. Um, and so there's some really good historical works that are uh, written by scholars, histor historians, unlike me, who is a soil scientist, but has learned some of this over the years, uh, and even just from family history as well. Um, but, but getting back to some of these, these uh, policies and actions that the government implemented, um, probably the, the big two uh, were related to the pass and permit systems. Uh, so the pass system affected all uh, First Nations people that lived on First Nations reserve uh, lands. And in order for uh, individuals to leave the reserve, to leave the boundaries of the reserve, they needed to get a uh, per, a pass uh, that the Indian agent would um, sign, uh, which would indicate that that person had permission to leave the reserve. So if you went into town, you know, somebody, uh, you know, the police could ask you to show your, your pass to indicate that you were allowed to leave the reserve. Um, and so there was that, the pass system, which really, you know, sought to control movement of people. Um, but then there was the permit system and the permit system was similar to the pass system. But what that was is it required uh, First Nations farmers who were farming on land on the reserve. So maybe they were growing wheat or they were raising cattle or pigs or chickens or whatever, um, they would need to have a permit that was also signed by the Indian, Indian agent, allowing them to sell their produce. So you can imagine where you have a system that, let's say, for example, that Indian agent wanted to make a buck or didn't like an individual, they had a lot of control over what was leaving the reserve in terms of being of being able to you know sell things, um, so there was a huge amount of control um, again over engagement in the wider economy, and and you know and it could really pit. Um, it could pit individuals within the community against each other if if one was being favored by the Indian agent over another um, so so both of those um, and they weren't even actually legislated policy. These were just actions that um, the, at the time, you know, Indian affairs uh, implemented through the Indian agent to be able to impose these things, but they were in place until, in some places, I think, until the 1960s. Um, so not that long ago. Uh, so those two things are really uh, detrimental. Uh, and then another thing, um, another policy was the peasant farming policy. And this required uh, First Nations farmers to essentially uh, adapt subsistence forms of agriculture. And what this meant even was that they couldn't use modern farm equipment. Um, they were encouraged to actually make their own tools. Um, so wooden tools, as opposed to, you know, steel, let's say, for example, and, um, 
And because of course they weren't, if, if they were not allowed to purchase new farm equipment or they weren't allowed to, um, you know, buy the tools to fix old farm equipment and they were forced to use, um, you know, basically subsistence style um, agricultural tools, then again, not able to compete and participate in the broader economy, the broader agric- agricultural economy. So again, that had like really damaging effects on on some of the progress that was being made. Um, I want to, I mean, I, I want to ask about that because it seems like this, the system was set up, the, you know, the treaties were negotiated and, and they said, here, this is what you're allowed to do. And then they start farming and being potentially successful, right? They've got things to sell and they want to interact with the economy and make money. And then it was like, no, no, we're going to, we're going to add something else in there to set you back even further. So that to me is just wild that, yeah. and like you say that the, the pass and permit system wasn't actually, it wasn't actually legal. They were just doing using, it. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, it was, um, I mean, it was, it was racism in the sense of not wanting this group of people to compete with the European settlers who were promised a, a brand new life, right? So a lot of European um, settlers who ultimately, you know, started farming on the prairies were coming from their own harsh conditions of Europe. And they were promised this new life where they would be able to establish their, you know, their, these brand new farms and participate in the economy of this new, you know, this new world, quote unquote. Um, and, and so, you know, if they're being outcompeted by the indigenous population, you know, that's, you know, and because of racism as well, it wasn't, it wasn't thought of as like, oh, the success of these people can, you know, leverage and, you know, result in the success of, of these new settlers. No, it was like a competition thing, right? And that was born out of racism. Um, and there was also the aspects of, of control because, you know, not every Indigenous person necessarily wanted to become a farmer. Like people still wanted to practice their traditional relationships to the land in terms of hunting and and fishing and, you know, being able to move freely uh, across traditional territory that was being eaten up by farmland. And so to be able to control people's movements because, you know, they were were used to being moving from, you know, their, their summer camp versus their winter camp and versus gathering places, right? That free movement um, was detrimental to this concept of private ownership of the land. And, you know, in, in Indigenous culture, um, and, you know, especially, you know, at least here, which I can speak to, um, you know, more, more, more freely about is, is that the, the concept of ownership, like of individual ownership of the land is just completely foreign concept. And so, you know, in order, you know, it's like a cultural clash, right? We have European settlers who, who from their culture, this idea of individual ownership uh, of land is, is something that's part of the culture and what they were promised. Um, whereas the indigenous culture didn't have that worldview. Uh, and so, you know, part of these, these policies also stemmed to keep control of the indigenous population. Um, and also because, you know, in the Métis Rebellion, a lot of uh, indigenous people and First Nations um, who actually had signed treaty 
didn't participate in that in the Métis rebellion um, because they were honoring treaty. But nevertheless, the the government sort of groups together, uh, you know, control of of those uh, communities and individuals that participated in the rebellion and encompass that, you know, to, to the broader indigenous population as a whole. So it was really, you know, about control and about, um, and you know, and about quelling competition. Mm-hmm. So the 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 success that the European settlers had was basically it was off the backs of First Nations people. So I I just think that this is um, I'm so glad you mentioned all those resources, right? Because there's so much to know um, mm-hmm. and so much to learn there, but. I'm just glad that you were able to touch on a few of those key policies because I think it's, I've heard it said that it's very important and I agree with this, that it's very important to understand what happened so that we can then, you know, move forward meaningfully. So yeah, I'm just so glad that you were able to, to touch on that with us. Yeah, for sure. So there's also really key soil quality or capability piece that relates Melissa to how land from reserves was surrendered or, or given to returning non-Indigenous war veterans after the Second World War, I believe. Can, can you speak to how this occurred and how this eroded the land base and the quality of the soil that was held by First Nations reserves? Yeah, following, actually, there, there, so there was a number of mechanisms or, or reasons that the Crown um, uh, essentially caused land, uh, reserve land to be surrendered. Um, and it was, and it was sold. So it was surrendered by sale. Um, and so some of these, some of these reasons were like expansion of the railway, um, um, and other development, uh, but also like a big one that I'm more familiar with because it's affected my own community was through the soldier settlement act. And so land surrenders, um, that were basically promoted uh, in order to eventually then be able to um, support th- these returning World War I veterans uh, to be able to get really basically cheap cheap land <laughs> uh, upon their return from the war. Um, and so through the soldier, so, soldier settlement um, land surrenders, a lot of land was, was surrendered. And I think... Um, across the prairies, something like 20% of the reserve land base was was surrendered uh, through a number of these mechanisms, not just the soldier settlement, but also through railway expansion as well as like 3,000, almost 300,000 acres in Saskatchewan um, was surrendered due to some of, you know, a number of these these reasons. Um, But the the irony with a lot of these surrenders is that the government, their pitch to the community um, to convince them to sell the land to to the back to the government was so that then the community could take the proceeds of that sale so that they could buy farm equipment. Or um, in one case, uh, they, the community wanted to um, purchase uh, materials so they could build a fence to protect against cattle from from um, moving onto their land or moving so that they contain their own cattle, but also so that their cattle wouldn't get mixed with the 
the European settlers um, cattle. And so the irony is that what ended up happening is that in, in often, oftentimes, um, you know, these, these sort of dealings were done under quite shady conditions such that they didn't ever, they were never able to purchase that farm equipment or they were never able to build that fence. Um, but those purchases, um, you know, and the, and, the, and the proceeds were really intended to better enable agriculture to happen. But what actually happened is that, uh, for the most part, a lot of our really good land um, was actually what was sold. And so there's, you know, there's been a number of specific claims that have, um, you know, been successful where communities have been able to demonstrate legally that, that the sale was done under nefarious conditions, for example. Um, and so this has enabled uh, quite a number of communities to be able to, um, you know, win, win these battles in court and, um, and then turn, turn around and, and in modern day um, use those funds to purchase land. Um, but, but certainly there's no coincidence that the best land was a land that was surrendered. And, you know, at the, at the time, the, you know, the, in, under different, different stories in different communities for, for why this happened, but oftentimes, um, you know, there was definitely some convincing and lies and oftentimes, um, you know, votes would have to be made by on the, at the community level to enable that sale to happen. And oftentimes they'd find no record of the vote. So it could have been one person making a deal with the Indian agent and all this land that was supposed to be held communally was then gone in a flash, right? Um, and so a lot of the, you know, there's been a lot of historical research that supported these specific claims that have shown, you know, basically all of these pretty shady dealings that occurred. And this was, um, you know, if we consider 300,000 acres that that was ultimately surrendered, this isn't just a case by case kind of thing. This was, you know, an institutional um, mandate in, in some ways, maybe not officially, but it was definitely something that was um, a strategy, a strategy to, to gain land that, that could be used by, again, by, by, by settlers. I sort of wonder why, like, why weren't they interested in taking, I assume there was crown land at the time. I guess it was just what was e the easiest thing to take was likely the, the really good quality soil yeah. from First Nations reserves. Yeah, exactly. Because there was quite a bit of land that was high quality class one, class two land that, that was surrendered. Yeah. And during your the talk that you gave, you you had the slide up there that showed what Muskeg Lake nation looked like before and then after and then all the different sort of um, polygons of soil quality. So when you see it like that, it's really it's quite remarkable how much of that really good quality soil was lost. Yeah. And totally, like I said, not a coincidence. And of course, I mean, there was we, we shouldn't mince words about it. There was a lot of damage done there and um, oppression. But I think um, a really hopeful thing, some really hopeful work that's going on is the work that you lead that looks to um, sort of revitalize Indigenous agriculture and some of that knowledge. So um, I'd love for you to tell us about the work that you've led and that you continue to lead that works to determine what's needed to continue to revitalize Indigenous agriculture into the future and the work that you do um, sort of more on a 
individual basis that empowers land managers on First Nations to to manage their own land? Yeah, sure. So a few years ago, uh, myself and a few uh, collaborators actually from uh, Indigenous organizations and First Nations and then some other um, faculty members uh, that were from the social sciences actually uh, we put together a, a forum on indigenous, sorry, a forum on indigenous agriculture in Saskatchewan, um, and this, so this was about three years ago now, and it was remarkable how much interest we had in people wanting to attend. And initially, um, we were restricted in, in some ways by the funding that we had and about the physical space that we were able to have a conference um, held. And we basically got the word out and within like two days, we were at like fire code capacity. Um, and, and so it was really exciting to see how much interest there was uh, and, and by Indigenous communities and um, staff within First Nations communities that were interested in attending and participating in this. Uh, and, and so the, the purpose of that forum was really to do a lot of information gathering just about like what kind of activities um, were communities and organizations engaged in, in either um, indigenous land management that pertain to agricultural lands or in activities that involve growing food, um, raising livestock uh, directly by, by communities or by First Nations individuals. Um, and so it, it, was, it was great because it was very much like a, you know, just wanting to get a survey of, of sort of what the landscape looked like. Um, and indeed, we had participation from all scales of agriculture, from community gardens, growing um, heirloom, indigenous um, varieties of, you know, different, different vegetable crops and horticultural crops from, from across North America that, you know, were adapted to our climate. So small scale like that, you know, all the way to um, First Nations that are operating, you know, thousands, thousands of acre size grain farms. So and, and, and everything kind of in between. Um, and so it was it was great because it did bring in a lot of um, a varied perspective and and largely from the Indigenous community. So the, the forum itself was was majority attended by Indigenous people. There was um, academics of all backgrounds and heritages that were there, as well as you know government representatives and other people from from the ag industry or for from environmental NGOs. But for the most part, um, the majority of the participants were Indigenous, and it it was wonderful because it really enabled um, kind of a, a really safe, open atmosphere for conversation. People weren't really holding back um, and were sort of open with with their ideas and and just a way of interacting. Um, and so that was sort of the start of, of a conversation. Um, and unfortunately with COVID, some of these activities have been delayed and some of the momentum that we had kickstarted with that ha has been delayed. But I think now that we know so much better how to use these online platforms, it might, I'm hoping anyways, that over the summer and into the fall, we can do some more of these activities that are online based that we can kind of continue some of that work um, that we started with just kind of getting a broader sort of scope of what what's happening. Um, and so that's that's kind of one piece that I've been working on. And I'll have to say, you know, it's been very collaborative. Like it's been, you know, 
myself, but then all of these other experts who have been able to come together and sort of form a team um, to, to spearhead some of this work. And so we're still working together uh, on, on projects and grants and, and hoping that we can move this forward. Um, but for me as well, some of the work that I'm doing, the research work that I'm doing is more focused right now on land management and working with First Nations land managers who are um, who are managing agricultural lands. And so in large part, what this means is actually uh, their big role is, is acting as a landlord. So much of the land is leased to um, neighboring farmers. And um, a lot of the, the, First Nation, the First Nations land managers are really interested in understanding um, what, what are the impacts of agricultural management on their land. Um, you know, they have a pretty good understanding of, you know, of their landscape and, and of, um, you know, all of the activities that are going on their land, uh, but there's still concerns about, let's say, for example, um, you know, water quality, whether or not soils might be degraded, whether or not, um, you know, spraying, for example, might be affecting adjacent, uh, you know, natural areas and ability for people to harvest berries or or medicine, that sort of thing. Um, and so I'm, I'm working uh, with them specifically right now on a project that's focused on soil. And one of the key questions that comes up time and time again when I talk to uh, First Nations land managers is they want to know, are we charging enough for our land? Um, and for a lot of communities, they might charge a, just a blanket rate uh, across the whole reserve, but there could be, you know, quite a lot of variability in, in terms of the land productivity, the land capability. And so, um, so I'm working with them in large part to just collect some baseline soil data um, and, and in, a, in, a, in a lot of the way, in a lot, sorry, with the, a lot of the intention there is even just to become um, as like a, a learning and teaching strategy of become becoming knowledgeable about, you know, what is soil, what does it do, and how does careful management of the soil lend towards long-term, you know, sustainable stewardship of the land. Um, and so, you know, a big part of our work is, is working directly with the communities to actually go out and soil sample and have those conversations on, on the land. And then ultimately, you know, we'll get a sheet of data that tells us how much organic matter is in the soil, you know, what the nutrient status is, you know, whether or not there's salinity, and then have a conversation about what those numbers mean. Um, so we're, we're doing that now. And that's what I'll be going to the field tomorrow to do is to um, work with one of the communities that we're working with to sample a whole bunch of soil. Um, awesome. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Because I mean, if you think about what's going on, um, on on land that's being farmed by non-indigenous farmers like land rent is it's up for negotiation right based on what's going on so i, I think it just yeah and it's i'm so glad that the work is going on to empower um first nations leaders to be able to make all those decisions and have all this knowledge that they and need have, to have all the data for themselves you know like for a lot of farmers you you work with agronomists you're collecting you're doing soil testing you're doing all of these other you know you're, you have yield data from every year um, but the land managers in the community don't have that historical data and and you know they don't necessarily have all of those records so um, some communities are starting to 
demand that information as part of their lease agreements, because then you can start monitoring changes, right? And if you see something change, um, and if you see something decline, you know that, you know, there's there's some external factor that's causing that that to happen, right? And so then you can make an inter- management intervention. Um, so it really is about, um, you know, increasing the amount of information that is at at the disposal for for decision making. Mm-hmm. Knowledge is power. Yeah, I was going to say that, but <laughs> <laughs> trust me to bring well, in uh, the, cheesy, the cheesy line. I'm good for yeah. those. So is that is that outside the um, certificate program, the land management certificate program? Yeah, that's just research uh, okay, research project okay. that I'm doing. But I will say that a lot of my the students that come through the program, um, because they end up working as land managers, I continue to um, you know see them at various workshops and conferences, and we continue to you know find ways to work together. So now a lot of them have become colleagues instead of students. And, um, and so that's really cool because they really form like a great net- network with each other as well. And they support each other um, uh, kind of as they go further into their careers. Hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, really cool. Well, thanks so much, Melissa. We've picked your brain for so much information tonight and I'm just so glad we did. You're very welcome. I was really happy to participate. Hopefully yeah, and, it's clear. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, one of the reasons why we wanted to, to have this conversation with you is because I think it lays a really nice foundation for the, for more conversations we want to keep having in, in future seasons of the diversity imperative pod. So just want to thank you so much for your time, for being so generous with your time and, and your knowledge. Well, you're welcome. And yeah, thanks for including this part, you know, this part of the history and, and contemporary situation. I think it's really cool that you guys are involving uh, Indigenous perspectives. I learned a lot today, Melissa, and Hannah's right. It's, um, it really just served as an introduction for me. There's so much more that I want to know. So we'll look forward to having you back another time to dig into some of what we've touched on today. Thank for you. For sure. You're welcome. And thanks very much to our listeners for tuning in to the sixth and final episode of season one of the Diversity Imperative. The podcast will be taking a break for hashtag plant 21, but Hannah and I look forward to our summer series. So stay tuned for more information on that. Until then, the conversation continues as always on Twitter at Diversity in Ag or on Facebook and Instagram at Diversity Imperative. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed this week's from the members of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. If you would like to learn more about the network as well as the podcast mastermind, you can head on over to positivelyfarmingmedia.com to learn more and to join us. If you are a podcaster in the food and agriculture space, we welcome you to our table. Or if you're thinking about starting your own podcast, we have a seat for you too. So head on over to positivelyfarmingmedia.com to learn more. 
We will see you back here next week with another special episode from the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast, a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim & Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story. The highly anticipated Trailblazer Co. 2022 Holiday Gift Guide is back. Imagine one place for all of your gift giving, all while supporting a rural woman. The Trailblazer Co. Holiday Gift Guide features the products and offerings of rural women from across North America. Available in print, digital, and online, visit the link in today's show notes or visit trailblazerco.com slash gift guide and get shopping.